Welcome to Quick Brain, bite-sized brain hacks for busy people who want to learn faster and achieve more. I'm your coach, Jim Quick. Free your mind. Let's imagine if we could access 100% of our brain's capacity. I wasn't high, wasn't wired, just clear. I knew what I needed to do and how to do it. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Welcome back, Quick Brain. This is your host and your brain coach, Jim Quick, and welcome to the Quick Brain podcast. And your question for today is a big one. This is something that's posted often in our Quick Brain app, in our private Facebook group, which many of you are part of. If you haven't joined, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 120,000 members on, on Facebook there. Question is always around attention and focus. And so in this episode, we have a special guest, and we're going to talk about focusing a distracted mind. Now, this podcast for me is a long time coming. Our guest today is Adam Ghazali. He's MD, PhD. He is the David Dolby Distinguished Professor of Neurology, Physiology, and Psychiatry at UC San Francisco and the founder of Neuroscape. He's also the host of a nationally televised PBS special, Distracted Mind, and the co-author of this book, which I highly recommend all our quick brains get, and you read this with our, you know, many of our quick reading students, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. Adam, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. When we're talking about focus, we're talking about attention. Why don't we give some context? Why don't we talk about the landscape of attention? Let's talk about the top-down attention and also bottom-up attention. I, I read your book you know, a, a little while ago, and I, it's, it's one of the books I recommend the most on this subject. But let's, let's maybe talk about the way you look at attention and talk about that landscape so people have some context. I guess it's first noting why attention exists at all, and that's because we can't put our resources are our focus everywhere at the same time. It's just not how the brain works. So there has to be selection. And attention is really about selection. And that selection process happens through two main forces, top down and bottom up. Bottom up is the more ancient force, the more ancient draw on our attention. And that are that is things in our environment that are either very salient, so very important or very, you know, impactful. And they are loud noises and flashes of lights and sounds and vibrations and things that were basically related to survival, things that prevent you from being killed and eaten or that help you find nutrients the things you need, need to stay alive. And so they're still very prevalent. All animals in the wild, are their survival really depends on bottom-up attention. It's a high sensitivity to the environment. And the other type of attention is top-down attention. That's the more evolved part, certainly in the human brain. I'd say that's the, a forte of our species. And that's where attention is dictated not by the relevance of stimuli in the environment, but by decisions that you make on what you want to focus on based upon your goals. And so it could actually be completely dissociated from what's important in, or, or very driven by the environmental stimuli. One example could be you're in a restaurant, very common area where there might be a lot of bottom-up input, like loud noises and plates mm -hmm. being rattled around. And your primitive brain is picking up on all that and wants to respond to that because it's, as I said, it's important for survival. But the top-down part is like, mm-mm. I don't care about that. I'm going to suppress that and I'm going to focus on this conversation, which might be a lot lower in volume and a lot less environmentally salient, but is important for your goals. So everything is really a balance of bottom up and top down. 
And that's actually just happened to me recently. Yesterday, I was catching up with a friend I haven't seen pre-pandemic. So it's a very close friend, but we went to a bookstore and we were sitting in the coffee shop and my outcome or my goal top down was to engage, right? To, to, to listen, to be there, be supportive. But then there was all the ex- external environmental distractions. If you were there, were music and there was food, there's all these other conversations, announcements on the PA. Um, so what's, what's going on inside the brain? Is there a filtering process that we're applying? Does it also, is it changing based on our age? How does yeah, that work? Great question. So the, um, the act of suppression of ignoring is not a passive one. It doesn't come, I, th- I think for, for a long time, the scientific view was that they were just two sides of the same coin, meaning that by focusing more, you're ignoring more. So you focus on this, you ignore on that. My research almost like 15 years ago using functional brain imaging was showing that they're actually dissociable processes. In other words, we found in older adults that 60, 70 healthy older individuals were able to focus on relevant information that we were presenting to them in the MRI scanner like they were 20 years old. The signals in the brain associated with that were no different than younger adults. But where they were failing was in ignoring irrelevant information we were presenting. So they had what I describe as a suppression deficit. And that study found something a little further, that the degree that they failed to filter out the irrelevant information directly correlated with how well they remembered things that they were trying to remember. So there, it's not just like irrelevant information does nothing. It's that, so the first piece of information there is that suppression is an active process that can fail and gets worse with age. Mm-hmm. The other takeaway is that when you fail to suppress distraction in your environment, it creates interference and degrades the integrity of the relevant information and could decrease your memory. It could decrease your long-term and short-term memory. It could decrease your decision-making. It could decrease your performance, your ability to engage in an empathic way with someone you love. Like it, it really has numerous cascading disadvantages across your life when you take in irrelevant information. So it's not even like because sometimes you'll hear that focus is like a spotlight and what you're focusing on and you just don't see the other stuff. But you're saying that it takes actual energy or effort to be able to suppress noise or inter- things that could interfere, the distractions that could take you away from what you're trying to put your attention towards. 100%. That, that view of the spotlight of attention is a convenient one. It's mm-hmm. not untrue, but Unlike everything else just being in darkness, what our data suggests and others is that the act of suppression is also an active one, that it's it's actively making it darker. And it makes sense if you think about it just mechanistically that you could create more of a differential between what's relevant and irrelevant if you didn't just increase what was relevant, but you also decrease what's irrelevant. And so it creates more of a margin and, and more contrast between that. So there's external, but then there is also this, this internal distraction as well. Yeah, distraction happens both externally and internally. And as you described, external is usually associated with environmental stimuli. And the internal is associated with internal stimuli. And those internal stimuli could be really diverse. It could be physiological signals like hungry or I'm in pain, or it could be related to emotion, I'm feeling sad or happiness, or it could be thought related that I'm thinking about a conversation I had earlier. We call that mind wandering, but it is equally 
it could be equally incapacitating for accomplishing your goals to have internal distractions or internal distractions. And, and what's worth noting is that internal distractions could be beyond annoying. They could be debilitating and paralyzing. So you could associate internal distractions with things like PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder, major depressive disorder, where a lot of that internal interference is just debilitating and, and pathological and prevents you from doing goal-related activities. So has it been your experience where we could exercise and apply some kind of discipline or training with some kind of tool, mental tool or, or some kind of technology to be able to enhance our ability to suppress both internal and external distraction or that noise? I think that there, I like to think that there are two main categories of approaches that we can take to help with that, with that suppression of all the irrelevant things around us that we don't want to get into our brains. The, the first is, I, I describe it as like the behavioral, like shaping your environment to make it easier for you, right? So if you're in a less distracting environment, like how I set up my desk here because I don't need to have like six screens right now, I'm having a conversation with you. Even things that you do when you drive, like some people say, oh, I should move my phone like out of my lap because okay. it's just too, it's too distracting to me to even know that that source of information is sitting there. You know, so there's a lot of things you can do to shape your behavior and your environment to help, just to make it easier for your brain to deal with. But that might not get rid of some of the internal distractions and it's not always perfectly capable of being performed. And so the other goal and the other approach is how do you make your brain stronger at doing that? And one of the things that I've devoted my last decade to and continue to work on is how technology, which is often a source of distraction, as you know, sort of implied by my book's subtitle of Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, and largely because those bottom-up influences that we discussed, like technology is the master of bottom-up influences. Like whether wittingly or unwittingly, technology developers know about bottom-up and that pings and lights and flashes and notifications, I mean, that's bottom-up, right? That's pulling you against your goals. So but what, what's interesting to me as, as now a technology developer and a neuroscientist is how technology can be sort of flipped around and used to help improve focus. And so I'm very interested, and we have a lot of data on tools that we have created that challenge the brain to pay attention. And because your brain has this property that I know all your, your listeners know about of neuroplasticity, that it can change and modify itself. And, you know, it's the basis of all of learning that our brains will learn and become optimized in its function. And if you challenge attention in a very targeted way, we've shown in numerous studies that we can improve attention outside of that particular domain that you're being challenged. And, and some of these are really ancient techniques like meditation and mindfulness practices, mm. which have been around thousands of years to do essentially what we're talking about. We're not the, the first you know, society to realize this is an issue. I mean, it's always been here. And you know, we've just come up with some ways to make that a little bit more accessible and deliverable to people using technology. But a lot of the lessons and approaches for how you practice attentional focus have, have been around a long time. And it's interesting. So you're, you're saying that, you know, as, as human beings, as we evolve and our hunter-gatherers, even back then, distraction was an issue, not so much as it is today where we're carrying the world's information like in our pocket. You know, in, in Limitless, a few years when it came out ago, I was talking about like digital horsemen of the mental apocalypse. <laughs> and, I, and I take a more, more pro 
approach towards technology. So I'm definitely not anti-technology. You know, fire is technology. Yeah. It could cook your food or it could burn down your home. So we talked about digital distraction, digital dementia. I like to alliterate, so I, digital deluge, <laughs> which is an overwhelm, and then digital, like a deduction, where it's sometimes we're not thinking as much because we have algorithms that are doing the thinking for us. Now, it's interesting because it's not just distraction and attention. You talk about a cognition crisis, mm-hmm. right? Where it's it's where there's an assault on even the things that we don't learn necessarily, like memory, creativity, imagination, decision-making, problem-solving. Yeah, I think that these abilities of the mind, you've you know, mentioned a lot of the ones that I'd bring up. I'd also add empathy and compassion onto that mm. list and wisdom as another like sort of pinnacle aspect of the human mind. All of them are fragile and all of them are subject to a negative impact of interference and all of them take effort to develop. Now, some of that happens unwittingly, you know, or not intentionally, I should say. And that's probably true for most of them. But maybe they should be, you know, it's one of the things I think about that we don't, you know, we we teach our kids reading and math as focused educational goals, but what about working memory and empathy and and high level analytical decision-making and, you know, the the cognition crisis idea and, and the concept that I've been advocating is that we have these crises in the world that we all know about, like climate change being a perfect example of, of one that is highly relevant to our future on this planet. But I often say that if we don't elevate our minds across all those domains we've been talking about intentionally and effectively, we're unlikely to deal with climate change. And, you know, because it's not that we're missing information about climate change. We have lots of information and other world, you know, major problems. But in order to deal with time-delayed crises, that involve an impact on others and not ourselves. You need a different way of thinking. And that really requires our, our minds, I would say, to be sort of leveled up. Right. What are, what are the suggestions you have for people who, who try to multitask? I think you believe, as I believe, it's more of a myth. And, and what should they be doing instead? This, this is a good follow-up to what we were talking about, distraction. So I tend to think of interference, goal interference, as having two main categories. One is distraction and one is multitasking. And I define them as different because distraction is information that you know is irrelevant, that you don't actually want to pay attention to, but it gets in any way. Just like your conversation in the bookshop the other day, like all that stuff around you was clearly a distraction. Right. In multitasking, it's also interference. They both interfere with your goals, but in multitasking, you make the decision to try to do two things at the same time or more than two things. And so what could be a distraction could be multitasking. So if you were in the bookshop and instead of ignoring the conversation on the next table, you decided to talk with your friend and listen to that conversation, which is very unlikely to do successfully, that would be multitasking. And what our data and other people's data shows convincingly is that when you look at interference, distraction impairs performance, multitasking impairs it even more (laughs) because you're diverting more resources with some failed suppression of distraction when you're actually trying to parallel process another task. And so it's the same rules apply um, that I, I mentioned for distraction. Like the first part I would say is awareness and just being a little introspective about how your ability to engage in something that's important to you, whether it's work or play or interacting with someone you love and care about and want to give them your attention, how it's degraded when you try to split it and do something else at the same time. And then 
use that awareness. Obviously, awareness is not enough to change behavior, but use that as a jumping off point to develop strategies and new habits about how you engage with the world and put those other things in their own space and and practice single tasking. I like to say like single tasking is is hard, but it could become really gratifying in its own way as you get good at it and realizing that it, it's sort of pleasurable to do one thing at a time. And, you know, multitasking has this advantage in that our brain responds to novelty and information with a lot of dopamine and reward. So it certainly has a driving force, but single tasking can be really enjoyable and lead to better productivity and I think better happiness. The challenges with, with trying to multitask we, we lose time, right? Because it takes more time to regain our attention or focus and light up a different, you know, kind of network. Mm-hmm. It takes energy <laughs> to switch back and forth. So you could use more, you know, brain glucose. And then people tend to make more mistakes. I mean, even just take people driving and texting, you know, yeah. which is, you know, so dangerous to be able to, you know, to be able to switch your attention back and forth. It's something, you know, when you're, when you're doing that and being more, you know, vigilant on, on and filtering out that low signal information. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the Quick Brain podcast. How do people connect with you either on social media or your website? Yeah, I have, I'm on most of the social media platforms. And I also have a website, Ghazali.com, which is sort of the aggregate of all the things I do. And it has a contact on there. Amazing. And we'll put again, links to your website, to your socials on, on jimquick.com forward slash notes. And also make sure you get a copy of the distracted mind. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Want to double your brain speed and memory power? If you'd like to learn rapidly and get ahead faster, I'd like to give you my brand new Quick Brain Accelerator program. You will discover exactly what I teach my clients to learn, read, and remember anything in half the time. There is no charge. It's my gift to you for being one of our subscribers. That's kwikbrain.com. Growing up struggling with learning challenges from a childhood brain injury, it's been my life's mission to help you have your very best brain so you can win more every single day. Now, want more quick brain? Here are four ways to fast track your results and lock in what you just learned into your long-term memory. Remember fast, F-A-S-T. The F stands for Facebook. You're not alone on this journey. I invite you to join our free private online group. There you can connect with me, your fellow brain lovers, links to resources, and even submit your questions for me to answer in future episodes. Go to quickbrain.com. That's K-W-I-K brain.com. The A stands for apply. Act on what you learned today. Remember, knowledge is not power. It's potential power. It only becomes power when you use it. So use what you just learned. The S stands for subscribe. Don't miss the next episode and other free brain training. And finally, the T stands for teach. You want to learn faster now? The key is to lock it in right away by teaching it to someone else. When you teach something, you get to learn it twice. Here's a simple way to do that. Leave a review on iTunes. Leave a review with your biggest takeaway from this episode. You could also post and share this podcast on your social media. It helps us spread our mission of building better, brighter brains. And of course, tag us so our team can properly thank you. Hashtag quick brain, K-W-I-K brain. Mine is at Jim Quick, K-W-I-K, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So what does FAST stand for? Facebook, apply, subscribe, teach. I'll see you in our next episode of Quick Brain. Until then, remember, you are faster and smarter than you think. 
I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you want to go deeper with many of these authors that we have on our podcast, these experts, I want to invite you to join our quick success program. This is our monthly lives that I do, where I teach something brand new that we haven't taught before, answer your burning questions. And also we have something that people have been requesting for many years, a quick book club. This is your Limitless Book Club, where every single month we read a book together, uh, like a book provided by this author. And then we get the author to come online and join us for a one hour uh, share, going deeper in these strategies, how to put them into practice. Uh, I share my five tips for how to memorize things out of these books. Many people want to read a book a month or build up to that. And this would be the program. So if you want to join, just go to quicksuccess.com and get your spot and join us live and get to meet these authors very uh, up close and personal. And uh, back to the episode.